the news is full of stories about people trying to limit other people's expression. A battle over a flagpole, faith in the First Amendment, and free speech. Americans are divided over what, when, where, and how things can or can't be said. From the ACLU, this is Ask an Expert, a special mini-series where our constitutional experts answer your civil rights and civil liberties questions. The importance of free speech in our democracy. The culture of free speech is under attack. It's crucial for students to be able to express themselves because schools are nurseries of democracy, and democracy only works if we protect a free exchange of ideas. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. For our first edition, we are diving deep into free speech and talking to expert Ben Wisner, the director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Free speech is widely considered the bedrock of democratic government. But still, many Americans feel both conflicted and confused by what actually constitutes free speech. What we can say, where we can say it, and who can stop us. We've been sourcing free speech questions from you over email, social media, and our phone line. We've sorted through the questions and categorized them into a few different episodes. For our first episode, we're getting back to the basics with Free Speech 101. With that, Ben, thank you so much for joining us as our expert. Thank you, Kendall. So, Ben, we solicited and read the questions coming in from our audience, and one thing it became incredibly clear to us. People are really confused about free speech issues. The issues surrounding free speech can feel really thorny. Why do you think that is? Well, actually, in my experience, most people don't think they're confused. They're pretty sure they know what free speech is, and they're often wrong. So I would rather have people be confused and willing to put their questions on the line for us uh, than be so certain that they know free speech when they see it. I think it's also important to remember that free speech questions, First Amendment questions, only become important when the speech we're talking about is controversial. If speech is not controversial, it doesn't need legal protection. Um, It's only when speech is unpopular to many that we need to protect it with a Bill of Rights that is, at its heart, counter-majoritarian. We say this is so important that even if majorities of people want to ban this speech, we're still going to protect it. And that relates perfectly to our first question. So I'm going to jump in by playing you a question from Jacqueline Jung. Yes, this is Jacqueline Jung. I'm from Manhattan Beach, California. And I was wondering what actually is protected free speech? Well, you should probably never ask a lawyer such an open-ended question because I think I could use up all of our session answering that question, uh, which might as well be, what is the First Amendment? But why don't we use this for just some brief level setting and Uh, get some basics out of the way so that we can then dig a little bit deeper. Uh, At the most basic level, the First Amendment protects our speech from interference and reprisal from the government. It doesn't protect our speech from interference, reprisal, censorship from Twitter or from Facebook, or in most cases from your private employer. And so that's really the most important first lesson here, which is that When we're talking about protected speech, we're talking about protection from government interference, not protection from anyone else who may disapprove of or want to essentially retaliate against you for your speech. But having said that, 
when we're talking about government involvement, interference in speech, most of our speech is protected. It's a more useful question, I think, to ask what is unprotected speech. What are those narrow categories of speech that we say that the government, the society, has an interest in actually being able to regulate or prescribe in some situations? And there is some, right? Defamation is a category of unprotected speech. Incitement to violence is a narrow category of unprotected speech. If I am in a leadership position, if I'm standing in front of a riled up crowd, if I instruct that crowd to go do violence against someone else, that may be a narrow situation where I, through my words, can be responsible for someone else's violent acts. But those acts have to be imminent. They have to be intended. Very rarely is that standard satisfied. Harassment is a category of unprotected speech. Most things we say, even things that offend, even things that hurt and wound, even things that deceive that are false, are going to be protected speech under the First Amendment. Thank you so much for that overview. I feel like that is really helpful even for me to hear what are the categories of unprotected speech. And to your point, we are going to dive deeper into a lot of these protected categories that folks are just a little upset about. So with that, I want to read you Jackson Daniels' question. Jackson Daniels actually is of Antifa. So here we are. My question falls to how to create, if possible, a line between free speech and hate speech. I am all for opposing views and controversial topics. However, I feel that it is often used as a shield for white supremacy, Nazis and religious bigots. What are the appropriate ways to acknowledge free speech while also holding people accountable for what they say? Does fascism and white supremacy have to have a space at the table of free speech? So those are a few different questions in one, but I think maybe we should start with the first. Is there a line between free speech and hate speech? Yeah, and it's interesting to me that the caller self-identifies as a member of Antifa, because it really puts a spotlight on something that I'm going to be saying over and over again today which is that anytime we make a rule and we draw a line and we say speech on this side of the line is protected and speech on that side of the line is hate speech or it's misinformation and it should not be protected, we have to remember that someone, really many people, are going to be the decision makers. They're going to be deciding which side of the line it falls on. So in the first instance, it might be a school principal or a sheriff or a governor or a mayor or a police chief. And then in the next instance, it's going to be a judge or many judges. And the question is, do we trust those political actors enough to draw the distinctions when we're dealing with a category called hate? And let me just say before we go on that the ACLU believes that words are powerful. The ACLU believes that words matter that things that we say are vitally important, uh, that they can do a lot of good in the world and they can do a lot of harm in the world. I mean, that needs to be acknowledged, uh, that words really do have power. But what makes this such a complex issue and why democracies around the world struggle with this issue and come out on different sides of this question is that at the end of the day, we're going to have political actors, law enforcement, politicians, judges who are going to be the ones making this decision. So the ACLU position has always been that if we give the government the discretion to 
ban something as broad as hate. And, and I should say here that hate speech is not a concept in American law, uh, as it is in some other countries. And again, the reason for that is we know um, from our history and from the experiences of other countries that that power will be weaponized against dissidents um, and not just against fascists and white supremacists. Seems like a good question to ask ourselves when we're considering these issues. Are we going to be okay with anyone deciding what is or isn't hate or what is or isn't acceptable speech based on simply who is in office? And then the other thing that I heard you say is perhaps we should also ask ourselves whether or not the government censoring speech would actually even have the impact we are hoping for. Here's another question, Ben, about misinformation from Susan Misner. Hi, my name is Susan Misner and I live in San Francisco. Here's my question. We managed to limit misinformation in commercial speech. So why can't we limit it in political speech? So... This is another version of what we've just been talking about, but it's very succinctly put and I think very helpfully framed. What would it mean for us to limit or regulate misinformation in political speech? So let's take a very extreme example that most of us would agree is misinformation. Um, And that is people saying the real winner of the 2020 election was Donald J. Trump. So how do we know that that's misinformation? Well, you know, we've seen the vote counts in certain states. Well, but that may not be definitive. What if there had been fraud? Well, we've seen that there have been lawsuits and those lawsuits have been rejected and the Supreme Court declined to intervene. So our system spoke, our courts spoke. They gave us a definitive resolution. Uh, And so isn't it easy to say that someone who goes online and says Donald Trump won the election is spreading misinformation? Well, let's complicate this a little bit. It is my deeply held belief, and I say this in all sincerity, that the winner of the 2000 election was Al Gore and not George Bush, Um, that he got more votes, that he even got more votes in Florida, and that when the courts sided with George Bush and resolved this definitively in a Supreme Court case called Bush v. Gore and said that Bush was the real winner of the election, that those courts were wrong, that they were engaging in unconscionable partisan behavior, that the decision was illegitimate and should be invalid, um, and that Gore is really the winner of the election. So now try to come up with a rule that says that claiming that Trump won the 2020 election is misinformation that can be regulated. But claiming that Gore won the 2000 election, which many liberals and Democrats believe, is somehow in a different category. And and again, I mean, that's a very stark example, but it really shows that when we're dealing with political speech, people's beliefs really dictate how they will view a statement as either true or false. And now imagine, again, a rule like that being enforced by a conservative federal judiciary. And I go back to What I said before, which is that the person who really co-opted the term fake news, which really is misinformation or disinformation, is Donald Trump. Uh, And once we start giving the government the authority to weigh in in a regulatory way on what is political disinformation, we're empowering people who actually have a stake. Uh, They're not going to, you know, scratch their chins and say, hmm, is this true or false? They're going to say, which side does it help? So Susan Misner said, what about commercial misinformation? We don't think that our 
government officials have any incentive to try to have the American people misled by corporations in a way that will harm them, to have drugs peddled to them with false claims, to have defective products sold to them with false claims, right? This is an interest that is pretty collective. It doesn't mean that the courts or the government will always get it right, but it's the kind of decision that we're comfortable with governments making, that if a corporation or you know makes a fraudulent statement, someone relies on it and is injured, that that's a situation where we don't have any real reason to doubt that courts or government officials can separate the truth from falsity. But when we're dealing with political questions, all of the incentive structures are different. All of the decisions and regulatory decisions are going to be made by people who are fundamentally political actors. And we don't want to give them that authority because we don't think that they're going to exercise it fairly or judiciously. I have a clarifying question for you about corporate speech and how we regulate misinformation there. So if you're saying that we rely on the government to separate the idea of, okay, this is corporate speech, we believe we could trust the government to make the right call here. But if we have corporate money in politics, that makes me a little bit more skeptical that the government truly can be impartial in regulating commercial speech. I think it's really a fair question. And and the point that I was making isn't that we think that the government is influence-free when it's making those kinds of decisions. But if you are those corporations and you are giving money to the government, you would rather that they legislate a world where corporations can say anything that they want. Uh, So there's still going to be tensions. Powerful people will still have more influence than powerless people. Rich people will have more influence than poor people. Um, Corporations will get away with a lot of things they shouldn't get away with. But the fundamental project of saying we're going to have a federal agency that tries to protect consumers from faulty products is one that we should be comfortable with um, in a First Amendment framework, even if it doesn't always work the way that we want, even if it's subject to some kind of influence. Okay. We will take that for now. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. So the next question comes from Scott Miller. Let me play that question. My name is John Scott Miller. I live in Maysville, Kentucky. Define what cancel culture is or isn't. Is it just a conservative name given to something even they don't fully understand? Or is it really a threat to free speech? This is a very hot button question, Ben. People want to talk about cancel culture whether or not it actually interplays with the law. Yeah, no, I think that's really fair. Although, in my view, the term cancel culture is so hopelessly polarizing that it sheds only heat and not light. So I'm going to propose that we take this term cancel culture, that we dig a little hole next to our computers right now, we put it in there, we cover it with dirt, and we wish it a fond farewell. Because I think that once you start talking about cancel culture. Again, everyone has their own idea of what it is, whether it's a problem, whether it doesn't exist. And I think it's just not a helpful way of talking about the free expression issues that it may be trying to describe. So the first thing I want to say is that when we're talking about cancel culture or free speech culture, generally, we're not talking about government retaliation or intervention. And so we're not talking about law and the First Amendment. If an online mob decides to go after someone for something offensive that they said, that may have serious consequences for the target of that online mob, but that's not a constitutional problem. Uh, And people who say that an online mob is exercising free speech are right in a legal sense. So let's get that out of the way. I think that the term that I want to use is free speech culture. 
And when I say that, I mean, you know, do we want to live in a world where people can express their views, can try out identities, can make mistakes sometimes without brutally harsh, life-altering penalties? Um, That's the world I grew up in. The world I grew up in, which was before the internet, which was before smartphones, which was before text messaging, you know, it was a world in which we said all kinds of things to each other. They were only heard and remembered by the people who were immediately around us. Um, And that allowed us to, you know, experiment with identities in all kinds of ways that really become impossible when all of that is, you know, recorded on Instagram or in a TikTok video, or in a Facebook post, and that might be searched by a future employer someday, uh, and might cost you, you know, very, very dearly. So let's talk about, you know, a category of cancellation, if you will, um, that I think is really unjustifiable. And that is when a young person, a teenager, says something dumb or offensive and then has lifelong consequences imposed by adults, which I think is inexcusable. Maybe it was stupid for you to sing along with that rap lyric on social media when you were 15 years old, but it doesn't mean you should have your college admission revoked. Um, And it doesn't say anything fundamentally necessarily about who you are. And, And this is what I think is so merciless about online culture. We think we know everything we need to know about a stranger. Uh, not just what they said, but who they are, from one small shred of evidence. So if you're joining one of these online pylons, online pylons against someone you've never met, think for a moment about one of the dumber things that you've ever said, and how it would feel if the entire internet were focused on that dumb thing. And, you know, this is particularly troubling to me in progressive communities, which are the communities that I'm much more familiar with, because these are the communities, you know, that in other contexts are into restorative justice, are into defunding police, are into abolishing prisons, that have, we we have agreed that people are much more than the worst thing they've ever done. And, And yet, when it comes to speech crimes, we're so sure that they give us a window into people's true nature that we don't hesitate to jump on. So I would say this, rather than get into an epistemic discussion about whether there is or is not cancel culture, can we agree that there are many instances where the collective punishment, social punishment, uh, that we impose on people for their errors is too harsh? is too harsh. Um, Can we agree that we have, in many instances, created a world where people's sincere apologies are ignored or not accepted, uh, and that we've already decided that we know what we need to know, and the apology has no impact on that? And can we try to import this very profound idea of charitable assumption a little bit more into the way that we view the conduct of strangers, um, people who we don't know? So that's how I'll answer that question. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I do think that it is more of a problem we see in some of our more progressive circles. And sometimes I wonder if it's because sometimes real justice on these issues feels elusive to us. So cancel culture is kind of right within our grip, right? It's on our phones. It's on our laptops. We can access it really easily and feel like we are standing up for something. Well, again, let's put cancel culture, let's put that term to rest for a moment. But to build on what you just said, you know, imagine being a woman 
in the entertainment industry and knowing for 20 years what Harvey Weinstein was doing to dozens or hundreds of women and seeing him get away with it. How could it not be irresistible that we're in a cultural moment where people essentially can take it into their own hands to create this accountability, even if police and prosecutors are slow um, and and far behind? And, and that's why I want to say, you know, when people say, you know, these online pylons are accountability, not cancellation. Well, sure. You know, in many instances, people have not been held accountable. They've enjoyed impunity for their misconduct and uh, and the justice that is visited on them is righteous. You know, but I would say that for every Harvey Weinstein, for every violent monster, you know, there are hundreds or thousands of people who are experiencing, you know, this phenomenon, which again is affecting their their friendships, their school prospects, their employment prospects, really their whole life is freezing them in, a, in, in their worst moment, where I think it's less justifiable. Yeah. And I think to your point, it is the opposite of what you would expect from people who value a restorative justice framework, right? Or just the idea that people can evolve and grow and learn. And I think most of us, to follow up on what you just said, would also say that we've changed. That if someone had taken a snapshot of one of our earlier identities, it might not be so attractive. I used to say, that if I could go back in time to most versions of my prior self, I would want to hit that person. Um, I just cringe when I think about some of the phases that I passed through. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that that you just really pointed to a key aspect here is that, you know, fundamentally we need to believe in people's capacity for change. And the question is, does an online mob taking certain actions against you make it give you more space for that kind of change or, or drive you into, into other corners and, uh, you know, possibly radicalize you in a bad way. So again, not to, to enter into the debate about that term, I just want to say I think that we can all treat each other better, uh, particularly online. Our next question is totally unrelated, but I do think it is the right question to end this first episode with, especially given our work at the ACLU. So this is from an anonymous question asker, and I will read the question. Is defending indefensible speech still worthwhile? Is it still in the best interest of the general population? Is it gaslighting the oppressed to suggest there is greater danger in limiting free speech than the real violence experienced by those against whom violent and controlling and dehumanizing language is regularly used. So I just want to say here that reasonable people can disagree on where this line should be drawn. Uh, and in fact, what I would consider to be reasonable governments disagree on this question. The U.S. has chosen to give more space for speech and less space for government intervention. Um, Canada, our northern neighbor, gives the government more regulatory power to go after uh, speech that this questioner would consider indefensible. Western European countries do the same. You know, Germany in particular obviously has a lot of sensitivities about Nazi speech or speech that supports Nazis or denies the Holocaust. In Germany, it can be a crime to deny the Holocaust. In the United States, that is protected political speech. Is that hurtful to my mother who is a Holocaust survivor? It surely is. Um, and so let's go to the 
word that the questioner used, and that is indefensible. But we could use any other word. Hateful, um, offensive, demeaning, harmful. Are we saying to the victims of this, you need to bear the brunt of this in order to defend the human rights of people who want to use these words? If I thought that slightly narrowing the free speech rights of Americans would eliminate or very measurably diminish racism, bigotry, white supremacy, if it actually achieved those things, uh, and I really believed that it was going to achieve those things, that more regulation uh, of that speech would contribute to ending racism, I would be very open to considering tweaking our free speech laws in order to eliminate um, that kind of hate and discrimination in our society. I fundamentally don't believe that. I think probably most of us don't believe that. And the countries that have, you know, attempted to ban this provide more than enough evidence that it doesn't have that effect. I simply have not seen enough reason to trust the people who would be actually enforcing these rules, that they would do so in a way that would target racism, but leave a broad space for the kind of political dissent and unpopular views that I think is vital in a democracy. Yeah. And I think it's important to also note that even within the ACLU, in the confines of our own organization, this is an active conversation always for us. The question asker posed, should we defend the indefensible? We ask ourselves that literal question too. Should the ACLU defend? Right. And that's not new. I mean, that there is an article from the New York Times in the 1970s the ACLU against itself, about the huge internal debates that the ACLU had about whether, you know, we should defend speech rights of neo-Nazis or the KKK. And, you know, some of those are a narrower question. Should this organization provide that representation, not should those groups have the right? Uh, I think there's broader consensus within the ACLU that the right should exist and more disagreement about whether and when the organization should actively um, support it. But I started my answer by saying, you know, reasonable people can disagree about where to draw the line here. And there are a lot of good faith efforts, um, as I said, in, in, in countries that, that draw the line in a slightly different place. You know, in my view, the risk that the government authorities who have this power will misuse it is greater than the benefit that would be derived from trying to regulate speech more. And in that way, we are ending how we began. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben, for, for joining us on this first episode and so excited to talk to you more next week about social media and online censorship. I'm looking forward to it, Kendall. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. We have two more episodes for you in our free speech series, which means there's still time to call or email in to ask Ben a question. Our next two episodes are on social media and online speech, followed by education bans, book bans, and student speech. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, call us and leave us a message at 212-549-2558. That's 212-549-2558. Or you can email us at podcast at aclu.org. And for more conversations, join us on Thursday for our regular At Liberty episodes, where we tackle all different kinds of civil rights and civil liberties issues. 